We are continuing in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 16. If you turn there in your Bibles, I think you'll be helped to follow along. I'm going to focus this Sunday, we're going to focus on verses 18 through 20, but I'm going to read verses 13 through 20. So Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Father, we come to you again in prayer, begging you to help us rightly divide these verses and rightly hear by your Spirit what you would have us hear. We do pray, O God, you would give us ears to hear, that you would make our hearts ready, make us good soil, Lord, to receive what you have to say to us, that we would bear fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. Father, we beg you that we would not only be hearers of the word, but we would be doers of the word. We ask, oh God, that you would make us more like Christ today because we've met together and prayed together and sang praises to you and heard your word read and heard your word preached and greeted one another and encouraged one another. So God, we beg you to be with us now and we ask that you have your way with us, that you would convict of sin and righteousness and judgment, that you would encourage our hearts to trust you, that we would see your love for us in Christ and know that you love us, that you care for us, even as we're here this morning and uh, allowed to hear your word again. Lord, what a great mercy it is that you've allowed us to see another Lord's day and to meet together. So, Father, help us not to take it for granted. Help us to be thankful. Help us to be amazed by grace, even that we're here today. And we pray we would hear from you, God. And we pray that you would change us, make us like Christ. For Jesus' sake, we ask. Amen. Last week, in verses 13 through 17, we heard the Apostle Peter make his great confession about who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. In our Wednesday afternoon book reading, we heard uh, a, a, a portion of, of, of declaration of who this Jesus is. It's, it's good to declare who Jesus is and to be encouraged and built up and meditate upon who Jesus is. And we got to do that last week. We read from Scott Swain this week, he, he's God's beloved son. He's the highest of the kings of the earth. He's the heir of all the nations. He's the head of the body of Christ. He's the husband of his bride, the church. He's the most handsome of the sons of men. He's the loveliest, most desirable, most satisfying object of all loves, desires, or satisfactions. This is who Peter declared to be the Christ, the son of the living God. And we ought to pray that we're taken up with a delight in Him and a study of Him. Spurgeon said, if Christ be anything, He must be everything. Oh, rest not till love and faith in Jesus be the master passions of your soul. That's a good prayer to pray. Oh, Father, make Jesus, love for Him and faith in Him, be the master passion of our souls. And Jesus has a bride. 
Jesus has a bride. Jesus has a wife. She is called the church. And today we hear Jesus for the first time take her name upon his lips. And he tells us how he's going to build his bride, the church. I love what one minister of the gospel wrote about this. He said the end goal of the creation of God was to provide a spouse for his son, Jesus Christ, that might enjoy him and on whom he might pour forth his love. And the end of all things in providence are to make way for the exceeding expressions of Christ's love to his spouse and for her exceeding close and intimate union with and high and glorious enjoyment of him and to bring this to pass. And therefore, the last thing and the issue of all things is the marriage of the Lamb. And the wedding day is the last day, the day of judgment, or rather, that will be the beginning of it. The wedding feast is eternal, and the love and joys, the songs, entertainments, and glories of the wedding never will be ended. It will be an everlasting wedding day. God created the world to get a bride for his son, the church, and we're going to get to meditate upon the, the church this morning. Well, point number one, Jesus declares that he will build his unstoppable church on the rock. Jesus declares that he will build his unstoppable church on the rock. Look at verse 18 again. Jesus is speaking here after Peter has made this bold and true and glorious declaration, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in verse 18, Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I would like to begin by discussing with you briefly what this passage does not mean, <laughs> because there's been much confusion and controversy over these two verses that we're covering today. Um, so I'm going to start with this uh, point, what, 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 what this does not mean. This does not mean that Peter was the first pope. Peter was not the first pope. This text certainly teaches that Peter was and would be a leader in the church, but it in no way teaches what the Roman Catholic Church has made into the office of a pope. Jesus says in Matthew 23, 9, called no man pope. Did you know that? Remember when the pope came to Philly and I preached a sermon called No Hope in the Pope? And I, I preached on this passage where, where Jesus says to call no man Papa, Father. Pope is the Latin word for Father. And Jesus says in Matthew 23, 9, in the context of false teachers in the church, Matthew 29, uh, 23, 9, Matthew 23, 9, and call no man your Father on earth, for you have one Father who is in heaven. Call no man Pope. Let's obey Jesus. Also, five verses later in Matthew 16, Jesus calls Peter not Pope, but Satan. Get behind me, Satan. At the very least, Lord willing, we'll look at that next week, but at the very least, that shows that Peter was not a special representative of Christ on earth. Furthermore, Peter was rebuked by Paul because his conduct was not in step with the gospel in Galatians 2, 11 through 14. He was rebuked. God never gave Peter the position of Pope. God tells us what kind of offices he established in the church in 1 Corinthians 12, 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, Second prophets, third teachers. It says nothing about a kind of 
uh, head emperor over the church like the emperor of Rome who has successors in every generation. The Bible says nothing about that. But God has given apostles, prophets, teachers, and Peter certainly was an apostle. Next, just note that Peter was married, and so Roman Catholics have this false doctrine that's led to much sexual morality uh, that uh, priests and popes do not marry. Well, Peter was married, 1 Corinthians 9, 5. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas and Peter? Also, Peter viewed himself as an elder like other elders. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 2, Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Peter views himself as a fellow elder. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And finally, nothing here or anywhere else in the Bible speaks of a pope over all the church who has supreme authority over the church or is the representative of Christ on earth or has a succession plan where this office will be passed down so that there is always a pope on earth. That's just not in the Bible. As one pastor said, they get a lot of, awful lot of traction from in between the words in the white parts of the Bible where it says nothing. <laughs> I love how D.A. Carson summarizes this. The text says nothing about Peter's successors, infallibility, or exclusive authority. These late interpretations entail insuperable. There's a big word for you, insuperable. I had to look that up. I will share with you now what that means. It means impossible to overcome. Impossible to overcome. These interpretations entail impossible to overcome exegetical and historical problems, exegetical just interpreting the Bible. After Peter's death, his successor would have authority over a surviving apostle, John. I'd never thought about that. That would make no sense. What the New Testament does show is that Peter is the first to make this formal confession and that his prominence continues in the earliest years of the church. See Acts 1-12. through but he, along with John, can be sent by other apostles, Acts 8.14, and he is held accountable for his actions by the Jerusalem church, Acts 11.1-18, and rebuked by Paul, Galatians 2.11-14. He is, in short, first among equals, and on the foundation of such men, Jesus built his church. So that's what this passage does not mean. It does not mean that, that Peter is the first Pope. Well, what does it mean? <laughs> what is the rock in verse 18? Is it Peter? Is it Peter's confession? Is it Jesus? Various interpretations have been given for the understanding of, of who or what the rock is. Uh, I believe the correct interpretation is that the rock is both Peter and his faithful confession of who Jesus is. Peter and his faithful confession of who Jesus is. One pastor has said, though the Pope is not in this text, Peter certainly is. And, and many people, I think, wrongly try to, uh, you know, just get Peter out of the way and say it's just his confession. I, I don't think that's being honest and faithful to the text. Craig Bloomberg writes, Jesus declaration, you are Peter, parallels Peter's confession, you are the Christ. As if to say, since you can tell me who I am, I will tell you who you are. The expression, this rock, almost certainly refers to Peter, following immediately after his name, just as the words following the Christ in verse 16 applied to Jesus. The play on words in the Greek between Peter's name, Petros, and the word rock, Petra, makes sense only if Peter is the rock and if Jesus is about to explain the significance of this identification. And so I believe Peter is the rock and his confession, his confession. And so Jesus is going to build his church on people who have the right confession about who he is. 
Hear these words of Jonathan Lehman. How will he build it? How will Jesus build his church? He will build it on this rock. What rock? Theologians have long debated whether the rock is Peter or Peter's confession. In fact, I think you have to say both. Theologian Edmund Clowney writes, the confession cannot be separated from Peter, neither can Peter be separated from his confession. Jesus will build his church not on words and not on people, but on people who believe the right gospel words. Jesus will build the church on confessors. Jesus then gave Peter and the apostles the keys of the kingdom, which gave Peter the authority to do what Jesus had just done with him, to act as God's official representative on earth for affirming true gospel confessions and confessors. The apostles had heaven's authority for declaring who on earth is a kingdom citizen and therefore represents heaven. Notice, Lehman writes, Jesus then gave Peter and the apostles the keys of the kingdom. And we're going to think about this more in Matthew chapter 18. But if you look at Matthew chapter 18, verse 1, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus. And so Jesus is addressing all the disciples in Matthew 18. And in Matthew 18, 18, Jesus says this, truly I say to you, and that you is plural, to you disciples, whatever you disciples bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you, plural, disciples loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so Jesus gave this authority to Peter and the apostles, and now the church is the final authority under Christ to bind and loose on earth. Now, now, uh, I, many of you have probably heard some outlandish things where people begin to pray, I bind this spirit, I loose this thing, I do this in Jesus' name. Uh, you might want to look at how the Bible uses this, this terminology and, and, um, and use it in a biblical way. Um, the church is now the final authority under Christ to bind and loose on earth. And this is why I'm a congregationalist. This is why I, the, Jesus doesn't give this authority to the pastor. He doesn't give this to the elders. He doesn't give this to the presbytery. He doesn't give this to the bishopric. I, I, this is just so clear. <laughs> I don't know how we can mess this up as a church and have different views on this, but we do. <laughs> it will all be sorted out in heaven. But this is absolutely clear that the church has the final authority under Christ to bind and loose on earth. Look at Matthew 18, 17. If he refuses to listen to them, to the two or three witnesses that go and call someone out about their sin in love, tell it to the church. And church means church. It doesn't mean elders. It doesn't mean bishopric. It doesn't mean, uh, it means the congregation. It means the ecclesia, the gathered people of God. Ultimately, Jesus gives this authority to bind and loose after the apostolic age to the church. Ed Clowney writes that Peter cannot be isolated from the eleven. Jesus grants to them all the power of the keys of the kingdom and he, that he gave to Peter. The church is not built on Peter as an isolated stone, but upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, those who, like Peter, have received the revelation of Christ. Ephesians 2, 19-20 says... The household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So Peter was a part of the foundation. On this rock I will build my church. Ephesians 2.20 says that the church would be built on the foundation of the apostles. And Peter is one of those. This was emblazoned in Peter's mind, and he writes about this in his letter, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5, as you come to him, a living stone. He's talking about Jesus there. Yes, Jesus is the rock too, <laughs> the rock of rocks, the rock who made the rock Peter. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones. And so not only Peter is, is a rock, but you, you are, are, are living stones who make a, a, a confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are those stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so Peter 
is the rock, and his confession is the rock. Peter is a major foundation stone on which Christ built his church. He is the first to confess that Jesus is the Christ. He's a leader of the apostles. He's very important in Jesus' plan to build his church, and his confession is rock solid. He told the truth about who Jesus is. This is crucial and indispensable. The rock is Peter and his faithful confession. You might say, I thought Jesus is the rock. He is. <laughs> Jesus is the rock. He's the rock of rocks. He's, he's the, he made Peter. <laughs> he created Peter. He, along with his father, revealed to Peter who he is in all of his works and acts. Jesus is the rock. But he has ordained that he build his church on rocks like Peter who are the foundation of the church, the apostles. Listen to what D.A. Carson says. This is very helpful as you think about Bible study and how to understand metaphors uh, uh, in the Bible like rock. Metaphors are commonly used variously until they become stereotyped and sometimes even then. Here, Jesus builds His church. In 1 Corinthians 3.10, Paul is an expert builder. In 1 Corinthians 11.3, Jesus is the church's foundation. In Ephesians 2.19-20, the apostles and the prophets are the foundation. And Jesus is the cornerstone. Here, Peter has the keys. In Revelation 1.18 and 3.7, Jesus has the keys. In John 9.5, Jesus is the light of the world. In Matthew 5.14, His disciples are. None of these pairs threatens Jesus' uniqueness. They simply show how metaphors must be interpreted primarily with reference to their immediate context. And so Jesus is the rock, and He's chosen to ordain other rocks on which He will build His church. Notice that Jesus will build His church. Verse 18, I will build My church. Just as flesh and blood did not reveal to Peter who Jesus was, Jesus, not man, will build the church ultimately. Remember John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We can't even come to the Father unless Jesus draws us. In the same sovereign way and, 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 and with the same sovereign power, Jesus says, I will build my church. Jesus would go on to die for the church. Jesus would go on to rise from the dead for the church. And Jesus commissions the church, which is our church's uh, mission statement, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus will build His church. Jesus is God who gives the growth. 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 7, I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. This statement by Jesus, I will build my church, reminded me of Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, which says this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Jesus is the builder. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Jesus is God, building all things. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. Right? The living stones. We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. One pastor comments on these verses and says, verse 4 makes explicit just how great Jesus is. 
For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Verse 3 says that Jesus made the house of God. Verse 4 says that the maker of all things is God. Conclusion, the same as chapter 1. Jesus, the Son of God, is God. That's how great he is. The word of our apostle is a sure word because it is a word carried by God himself. The atoning work of our high priest on the cross is a finished and all-sufficient work because it has infinite value as the work of God himself. Consider this about Jesus. He made Moses. And he made you. Do you see how verse 6 ends? Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope from until the end, firm until the end. The church of Jesus Christ is the house of God today, which means that Jesus this morning, not just back in Moses' day or in his own days on earth, but this morning is our maker, our owner, our ruler, and our provider. He's the son. We are the servants. We are the household of God. Moses is one with us in this household, and he is our fellow servant through his prophetic ministry. But Jesus is our maker, our owner, our ruler, and our provider. Jesus Christ will build his church. Briefly, what is a church? What, what is a church? Um, I, I try to be very careful, even in announcements. So this announcement this morning about coming to clean the church. Ugh! Coming to clean the church building because the church is not a building, right? Uh, I try to be very careful with that when I make announcements about, and it, 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 we're going to meet at 3.30 to go out to Westchester at the church building. If I say we're going to meet at the church, what am I teaching you? Something false about what the church is. Th this is a building where we meet, but the church is a gathered people called out to follow Christ. I wrote a definition. I mean, briefly, the word, the word means the assembly. It means assembly. It was used in other places in the New Testament and other places in Greek literature at the time for a gathering of people. So, uh, you know, you could say there's going to be a church in Arizona next Sunday night, a big gathering of people for the Super Bowl. It, it was used as a gathering of people, ecclesia, the gathering. But for our religious uh, terms. It's the assembly, the gathering of people of those called out by God. And this is my longer definition. A gathering of born again, saved sinners who are trusting Jesus Christ and obeying all that he has commanded them by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God, where the Bible and the gospel is faithfully preached and practiced, where they are led by biblically qualified elders, where baptism and the Lord's Supper are rightly practiced, and where church discipline is rightly practiced. That's a church. A gathering of born-again, saved sinners. Maybe I, I could add something to that. A gathering of born-again, saved, baptized sinners who are trusting Jesus Christ and obeying all that he has commanded them by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God where the Bible and the gospel is faithfully preached and practiced, where they are led by biblically qualified elders, where baptism and Lord's Supper are rightly practiced and where church discipline is rightly practiced. That's a church. That's a church. This is uh, uh, what Jesus is, is saying he, he will, on this rock, I will build my church. And notice in verse 18, beloved, he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. The church. The church. The gates are like city hall in the Bible. The gates are like the courthouse in the Bible. The, the, the government headquarters of a city are the gates. This is where policy is made, where laws are made, where strategy and plans are formed. You, you, you sort of hear this idea in a place like Proverbs 31, 23, her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land, making decisions by the elders. The, the gates are the, this place that strategy and plans are, are formed, and, and gates also represent strength and protection and even imprisonment. Gates keep you from getting in, and they keep you from getting out. 
Hell or Hades is the place of death and, and judgment. And so what does this mean when Jesus says the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church? It means all the strength and power and plans of Satan and death and hell will not stop the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus went to war in enemy territory. He came to destroy the works of the devil. He's going to conquer. And he's going to conquer through his church. Individual local churches may close their doors, but more will be planted and more will grow and his bride, the church, shall never die but accomplish all of God's purposes in the world. They killed Jesus and that didn't stop him. We follow him. The church will never be stopped. The church will never be stopped. J.C. Ryle writes, nothing can altogether overthrow and destroy the church. Its members may be persecuted, oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, beheaded, burned, but the true church is never altogether extinguished. Extinguished. It rises again from its afflictions. It lives on through fire and water. When crushed in one land, it springs up in another. The Pharaohs, the Herods, the Neros have labored in vain to put down this church. They slay their thousands and then pass away and go to their own place. The true church outlives them all and sees them buried each in his turn. The church is an anvil that has broken many a hammer in this world and will break many a hammer still. It is a bush which is often burning and yet is not consumed. That'll preach. Thank you, J.C. Ryle. And we know this is going to happen because we see what's going to happen in the book of Revelation. We see that marriage supper of the Lamb, that consummation that's going to happen. And Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail against my bride. Revelation 19, 7 through 9, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with a fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. These are the true words of God. Nothing will stop the church. Jesus will carry out his purposes. And we should, we should take a lesson from King Jesus. He, he came to enemy territory to build his church. May we have more of that spirit in our lives. I love what C.T. Studd said. Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. May God call some of us to go within a yard of hell to plant a church for the glory of King Jesus. My second point, Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom to Peter. Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom to Peter. Look at verse 19, Matthew 16, 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he, is, that he was the Christ. The church is like an embassy of the kingdom of heaven on earth. And, and Jesus here gives the keys of the kingdom of heaven to Peter. He gives Peter these keys. And in that, he gives Peter a unique authority as the first to open the gates of heaven through the preaching of the gospel. I was helped to see this by a parallel verse in Luke 11.52. Luke 11.52 says this, where Jesus is warning false teachers who make false confessions about Jesus, who pre preach false teaching about Jesus. And Jesus says, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You do not enter yourselves, and you hinder those who were entering Peter is doing the exact op opposite of this in his proclamation of who the Christ is. He, he's not taking away the key of knowledge. He's giving people the key of knowledge. He will give the people the key of knowledge on Pentecost when he preaches the gospel. And so Peter will be the first to preach the gospel on that great day of Pentecost and use the keys 
of the preaching of the gospel to open the gates of heaven, to loose the gates of heaven to all sinners who would repent and believe. And binding is shutting the door. Binding is shutting the door. And beloved, you, you should realize that any time you preach the gospel, for some people, you, you are the smell of life. And, and, and they'll come and believe and, and heaven's open. I remember at Broad and Olney, I used to work with this lady and, and I would, she would be down on the escalator and I, just sort of in a joking way, I would say, I would say, uh, on, my, on my signal, unleash heaven. And by that I meant preach the gospel. On my signal, unleash heaven. And so we unleash heaven when we preach the gospel to people. We open the door of heaven when we tell people the good news of Jesus Christ. But in the same congregation, in the same crowd, you're, you're going to be a smell of death to others. And they're going to hear, and they're going to harden their heart, and they're going to leave in a worse place than when they came. Because now they've heard the gospel, they've rejected it, and hell will be hotter for them now. God's judgment on them will be greater. I mean, usually when I talk about this, children, I do think of you, because you, you are, I was telling a couple of the young ladies this morning, you are unbelievably privileged unbelievably privileged to have Michael Osborne and Becky Osborne as your parents. Unbelievably privileged to have Stephanie Alexander as your mama. Unbelievably privileged to have Jerry and Kate as your parents. Billions of children don't get anything like that. Billions of children are put in homes Buddhist parents, Hindu parents, Muslim parents, and grow up being taught lies their whole life and dying and going to hell. Children, you ought to leap for joy today at what God's given you. Giving you parents who have you here today. Parents who teach you the gospel. Parents who weep and cry over your soul in prayer because they know if you don't come to Christ, you're going to go to hell. And they love you. Amazing privilege. But you see, if we, we hear these privileges, we, we enjoy these privileges, we hear the gospel, and then walk away, it will be so worse in the fires of hell for those people than for people who've never heard. Jesus teaches that. Jesus teaches that. So Peter when he preaches the gospel, when the apostles preach the gospel, when we preach the gospel, we are binding and loosing. Look, look with me briefly at Acts chapter 2. Just see this happen. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Let's read. Let's read this chapter. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. I sort of want to talk about tongues right now, about, about what it really is. It's not goo-goo, gaga, Bible, Bible, Bible. This is what tongues is, according to Acts chapter 2. When they're speaking in tongues, that means people came here today that don't understand Spanish, and God supernaturally gives me the power to speak Spanish so they hear the gospel. It's not Shalababa Eshbaz. It's not just babble, okay? This, this is what the Bible says, tongues are, okay? <laughs> uh, uh, they heard people speaking in their own language, a real language you can hear and understand that has meaning. To speak in tongues is only to give the utterance. Now, now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and as the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So they could hear the life-giving words of the gospel of Jesus Christ and be saved. 
And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of, uh, uh, of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and, and, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed and saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. But Peter... But Peter, the rock, the rock, Peter standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, decla- it shall be decla- God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and I shall show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand uh, uh, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy one see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day 3,000 souls. Peter is the rock on whom Jesus would build his church, and he would open Heaven's gates at this glorious day of Pentecost preaching the death and resurrection of Jesus and calling people to repent and believe and 3,000 souls were saved. Mark Dever writes, Peter is in this unique position which is not magical but it is historical. It's chronological. Among the disciples, he's the one that God chose to be the first confessor of Jesus as the Messiah. And Peter would use this unique authority that God gave him, these keys, this preaching of the gospel, and so open the kingdom of heaven for so many to come in. It would be through Peter that the Jews, first in large numbers, came in as he preached at Pentecost. Even the Gentiles, as he shared the gospel at Cornelius' home in Acts chapter 10. It would be through gospel preaching like Peter's that people would be reached out to and brought into the kingdom of God. That's the keys he's talking about here. On the other hand, If we want to keep people out of the kingdom of God, then all we need to do is keep our mouths closed, not proclaim the gospel about Jesus Christ. Friend, do you know the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
Do you know the gospel? Could you explain someone the gospel in a brief amount of time? Well, I feel remiss in any sermon if I don't preach the gospel. (laughs) And so I'm going to right now. (laughs) The good news of Jesus starts with bad news. The bad news is that we've all sinned against God. We've broken His laws and commandments in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We've not lived up to God's standards. We break His commandments in various ways. We break God's commandments in our sexual morality, in our fornication, in sex outside of marriage, in in lust and pornography, by, by, by thinking things we shouldn't think. We break God's commandments. We break God's commandments by murdering and violence. You see it all over the, the world, all over our city today with violence and murder, and yet we do it in our hearts. We get angry. We lose our temper and murder people in our heart, Jesus says. And so we break God's commandments. We lie, cheat, steal. We love other things more than God. We love uh, ourselves more than our neighbor. We, we sin against God. And the Bible describes us as evil and wicked, that the heart is wicked, uh, 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 that there's none who seeks God, none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because of that, we deserve God's wrath. We deserve God's judgment in hell. Uh, we, we deserve for the gates of hell to overcome us and lock us in forever. That's what we deserve because of our sin. But God is good and God is holy and God is righteous. But praise God, He loves sinners. God loves sinners. He loves sinners and He sent His Son Jesus into the world. And, and, and Jesus is the God-man we're reading about who spoke like no man ever spoke, who taught like no man ever taught, who did miracles and loved like no man ever loved. And He gave His life as a ransom for many. He died on that cross where He suffered God's curse. He, he, he had the gates of hell prevail against Him. The gates of hell prevailed against Jesus and overtook Him and crushed Him. The wrath of God crushed Him and He died. And he was buried. But the gates of hell didn't prevail against him. Because he got up from that tomb. (laughs) He got up from that tomb. He's not dead like Prophet Muhammad. He's not a prophet. I so was tempted to get more explicit yesterday at the funeral when you had all these young ladies covered with their Muslim garb. And I went, Muhammad cannot save you. He's dead. Jesus is alive. Jesus conquered death. You and I, we need a living Savior. We need a living Savior. And He's alive forevermore. And He calls all people everywhere now. Whether you're Buddhist, uh, 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 Muslim, uh, uh, Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, Baptist, Presbyterian, He calls every people everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. To trust in Jesus. To be saved. To repent of your sins and follow Christ. This is something you can't work for. You can't earn it. You can't clean yourself up enough. You can't come to church enough to earn this. It's, it's a free gift given by God that you receive by faith alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Friend, would you do that today if you've not believed? Would you believe in Him today? Would you trust in Jesus today? He will forgive you of all of your sin. Past, present, future, everything. He'll forgive you and welcome you into His kingdom. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. If you've not believed that, I would love to meet with you afterwards and talk with you that you might understand this gospel, believe it, and be saved. And this building and loosing function. Jesus saves you to put you in His church and He gives this binding and loosing function finally to His church. To His church. I again want to look with with you at Matthew 18. We'll go into this in a lot more detail when we get there, but I, I just want to read Matthew 18, 15 through 18. Matthew 18, 15 through 18. And, 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 and beloved, some of you at members meetings have trouble when we remove members from membership. This is why we do it. We don't do it to spite people. We don't do it to merely make people feel bad. We do it because Jesus says to do it and because Jesus says it's the loving thing to do to remove somebody from church membership if they're not willing to keep repenting and following Jesus. Because it warns them that something's wrong, they're headed in the wrong direction and they need to repent and come back to Christ. Matthew 18, 15-18 If your brother sins against you, Jesus said, 
Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the elders. He doesn't say that. Tell it to the bishops. Tell it to the diocese. Tell it, tell it to the pastor. It doesn't say any of that. Why is this hard? I, please, come and tell me why this is hard afterwards. If you know why it's so hard, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. Tell it to the gathered church of Jesus Christ. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Beloved, we sometimes run away from Roman Catholicism to the exclusion of what the Bible actually teaches. And one of the ways we do that, not only we can downplay the place the Bible gives Peter and even downplay the place the Bible gives Mary, we can downplay the power God gives the church of Jesus Christ. Amen. God, what's the highest authority on earth under Christ? It's not the American government. It's the church of Jesus Christ. Amen. When we vote as a congregation, the Spirit of God is with us. Those are binding judicial actions that Jesus Christ has given to His church about who is a member and who's not. You believe that? What does this mean that God has given the power to the local church to bind on earth and to loose on earth? And what is bound on earth will be bound in heaven, and what is loosed on in earth will be loosed in heaven. I think, again, Jonathan Lehman is helpful here in comparing it to uh, the U.S. Embassy. He says, I used to live and work in Brussels, Belgium. The U.S. Embassy there formally recognized me as a U.S. citizen and gave me a new passport when my old one expired. Even though I am a U.S. citizen... The embassy possesses an authority I don't possess. The authority to speak for and make provisional decisions on behalf of the government of the United States. By giving the keys of the kingdom first to Peter and to the apostles and then to the gathered churches, Jesus gave churches a similar authority to the U.S. Embassy in Brussels. The authority to make provisional judgments concerning what is a right confession of the gospel and who is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. This is what Jesus meant when he said churches possess the authority to bind and loose on earth what's bound and loosed in heaven. He didn't mean they could make people Christians or make the gospel what it is no more than the embassy could make me an American or make American laws. Rather, Jesus meant they could make official pronouncements or judgments concerning the what and who of the gospel. What is a right confession? Who is a true confessor? Jesus gave the church that authority. That's why we take church membership so seriously here. That's why before people join the church, they go through a nine-week-long or more class to learn what, what we believe, what the Bible teaches, what it means to be a member. That's why we have prospective members come to an interview with the elders to, to, to share their, their right confession of faith. That, that's why then we recommend them to the congregation who has the final authority to bind and loose so that you vote and say, yes, this person seems to be a Christian. Again, we don't make people Christians. But God has given the church the authority to make the declaration, this person's a Christian, for the watching world to see. Jesus has finally given this authority to the local churches. But beloved, notice this. This, this is amazing. This is amazing. Isn't it amazing to think that Jesus would choose such a man as Peter to be a rock? <laughs> this should be encouraging. <laughs> This should be encouraging. I mean, Peter's life radically displays for us 
the lavish love, mercy, and grace of God. Jesus picked a man who swore and cursed that he did not know him to be the rock. I mean, Sinclair Ferguson was asking, would you make a man who swore, who cusses an elder? (laughs) Would you make a man who curses Jesus that he didn't know him to be an elder in your church? And then he says in that kind, gentle, Scottish voice, Jesus did. Jesus did. Jesus did. I mean, the the mercy and grace uh, of Jesus. Jesus picked a man who swore and cursed that he did not not know Jesus to be a rock on which he would build his church. Peter often spoke before he thought. Peter will be called Satan, as we've seen by Jesus in just five more verses. I'm going to build my church on you, Satan, Peter. Peter cut off a man's ear with the sword. Even after Jesus, some people say, well, that was all before Pentecost. That was all before Pentecost, and everything's different now. Not. Read the whole Bible. (laughs) Even after Jesus' death and resurrection, even after Pentecost, Jesus, uh, uh, Paul, found Peter's conduct not in step with the truth of the gospel. And he had to be confronted. Because he wasn't living according to God's word. Galatians 2.11, when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. This is the rock. And Peter even committed one sin that seems unforgivable. In Matthew 10.32-33, Peter heard Jesus say, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Peter denied Jesus three times with cursing and swearing. But friends, see the love of Jesus. See the mercy of Jesus. See the the grace of Jesus Christ. Jesus forgave Peter. Jesus is an amazingly patient, all-merciful Savior who forgives terribly egregious, really bad sinners. Remember when Peter first saw Jesus after the resurrection in John 21, 7? When he first saw Him on the the sea, that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. Peter was a great sinner, but he, he just always clung to Christ. He ran to Jesus. He threw his cloak off and jumped in the water and, and swam to Jesus. He had a passion for Jesus, to be with Jesus, to love Jesus, to repent over and over again and, and follow Jesus. And in John 21... Uh, we see how Jesus restores Peter. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And Jesus restores him. Jesus convicts him of sin. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? You denied me three times. I'm going to ask you three times, do you love me? And Peter confesses his love for Christ and Jesus tells Peter over and over again, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, preach the word, continue to open the kingdom by the preaching of the gospel. Jesus is an amazingly patient and merciful Savior who forgives terribly egregious, really bad sinners. And so friend, if you're uh, here this morning and you're a 
terribly egregious, really bad sinner, know that Jesus came for you, that Jesus loves you, that Jesus uh, can save you and restore you, and, and Jesus can make you a great uh, herald of the truth that many sinners might be saved through you, and, and He wants to add you to His stones of His church. Finally, Jesus warns His disciples to keep His identity a secret for now. Look at verse 20. Then He strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that He was the Christ. We've seen this before in Matthew's Gospel that Jesus commanded silence about His true identity and He did that for a purpose, for purposes. Jesus didn't want to be misunderstood. He didn't want people coming to Him merely for physical healing as a wonder worker or as the military leader who would crush the Romans, but He wanted the people to hear His words. He and His words give eternal life. Jesus wanted people to rightly understand who He was and what He came to do. And, and Jesus had a timetable for His mission. It wasn't time yet for Him to fully disclose the whole truth about Himself. He could be arrested and killed prematurely. And so He commands silence here to tell no one that He was the Christ. We see this clearly in John's Gospel. In John 2.4, my hour has not yet come. In John 7.30, so they were seeking to arrest Him, but no one laid a hand on Him because His hour had not yet come. John 8.20, no one arrested Him because His hour had not yet come. And so He commanded silence because He didn't want to disrupt the timetable. His hour had not yet come. But then, of course, in John 12.23, we read, we read the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And He went to that cross and He suffered and died and rose again to save us from our sins. And beloved, just remember, we don't have this warning from Jesus to tell others, to not tell others who He is today. <laughs> After the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this warning ceases and we are to go and tell the world, to tell our friends, to tell our family, to tell our children, to tell our mail carrier, to tell the person we see at the post office, to tell uh, our friends and family, to tell our neighbors, to tell everybody the good news of who Jesus is. I would encourage you to plan to do that. Take some of our cards. Have cards ready with you. Have tracks ready with you. Have them in the car. Have them in your pocket. Have them ready when you go to the store and invite people to church. Invite people to hear about Jesus. Uh, you know, the first five times you do it, you'll feel like a weird uh, religious nut. But, but you know, after you do it 10 or 15 times, you just, you just, it becomes normal. And you begin to like being viewed like a religious nutcase. And, and you have assurance that when you bear witness to who Jesus is before men, that your Father in Heaven will bear witness to who you are before His Father in Heaven. And so tell people. Tell people the Gospel. Work that into your daily life of telling people the Gospel. Pray in the morning, Lord, give me opportunities to tell people about Jesus today because we don't have this warning. We're to tell everybody that Jesus is the Christ. Christ Jesus came, His church to build. Upon this rock, His Spirit filled. Peter would lead and guide what sealed with God's Spirit. Christ fulfilled the gates of hell. Christ crushed and killed. All wrath is quenched. The fires are chilled. He died and rose. Salvation willed. Now keys are given to the skilled to bind and loose what God would build. A people who with Christ are thrilled. Father, we pray that uh, we would uh, rightly be invested in Your church. Lord, that we would rightly submit to her, the bride of Christ, that we would submit one to another. Lord, we thank you for building your church on Peter, the rock. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the rock. We thank you that, that we are rocks in the building as well and that you're building us up to be a holy temple. We ask, O oh Lord, that we would be faithful to all that you've called us to do, that we as a, a church would, would, would be faithful to proclaim the good news of the gospel to others, that others may come in. We pray that we would be a faithful church to bind and loose what we ought, to make proper declarations about who is in and who is out. We pray that you would help us to faithfully uh, exercise church discipline when the need arises. 
And so, God, give us wisdom. Give us grace. Lord, we thank You for the lavish grace of Christ. We thank You that You would make such a man as Peter the rock on which You build the church. We pray that that would encourage us, Lord, that You've chosen us, that You show us lavish grace and mercy. We thank You for that, God. Help us pursue You like Peter did. Help us run to You when we sin. Help us cling to You always. Help us love You like he did and even more. For Jesus' sake, amen. 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 Officer Reddick, could you stand? uh, I'm a police chaplain, and I go pray with police, and I just noticed Officer Reddick's here, and I I told him I wanted to pray for him if he was able to come today. He serves in the 35th District. He's he's one of the officers that I've gotten to know really well there. I don't get to know all of them as, as well as I get to know him and he's always very kind to me. He's always very encouraging to me. If I can't get in, I call him and he gets me in. Uh, he has come to the aid and rescue of some of our members. Sister Lena has locked her keys in the car several times, and he's always quick to come and help her. Uh, so please meet him afterwards. I want to pray for him now before we sing our final hymn. Thank you, brother, for coming. Um, Father, we thank you for Officer Reddick. We thank you for his faithfulness as a police officer for so many years. Uh, We thank you for his desire for you. And Lord, we ask that you would be with him. We ask, oh God, that your uh, grace would be upon him, that you would continue to help him in the hard job that he has where he puts his life on the line daily uh, to serve and protect. We ask, oh Lord, that you would protect him, uh, that you would take care of him, that you would help him uh, in his job, that you give him wisdom. We pray that he would grow in the likeness of you, Lord Jesus, and, and show you to others in his job. And so, God, we beg you to bless him and keep him and make your face shine upon him and be gracious to him. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Amen.